3: I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I've been one of my friends just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate, teach, put it in perspective. Call me, 1-800-743-CBC. Be nice or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Look, you get used to this, man. We have no choice. We can react at every turn to every development in Ukraine and every sanction against Russia, or we can simply admit to ourselves that Vladimir Putin will not be deterred no matter what the West does. Therefore, even as his economy is no bigger than that of the state of Texas, many stocks will continue to be sold even when they shouldn't be. And that's how you get a wild day like today where the average is open week, rallied, dropped again, then finished stronger. Because we're in what should be a seasonally strong period. Dow uh, tumbling 166 points. It was down so much lower earlier. SME sinking 0.24%. NASDAQ only inching up 0.41%. Almost all that move made in the last 18 minutes of trading. I know, it's thin. It's even ridiculous. But it's the correct dispersion, with growth stocks doing well because they've been crushed already, while the financials and industrials take a beating because of Putin's naked aggression and because they've been up so much. Going to this war, I expected Ukraine would crumble in the face of seven mechanized divisions, and Russia would quickly establish a puppet government. That was wrong. The fact that this didn't happen has emboldened Western European uh, countries to arm the Ukrainians rather than only respond with just financial sanctions on Russia. They were surprised, too. Everybody was surprised, particularly Putin. That's changed the political calculus here, not because Putin cares about the EU, he doesn't, but because he doesn't want to lose the People's Republic of China as an ally. Oil can only go so far as making friends. These two men President for life Xi Jinping of China and President for life Vladimir Putin of Russia both desperately want to finish out their indefinite terms. And until this weekend, their futures seem pretty darn secure. But their interests are now clearly diverging. A quarter of China's exports go to the same European countries that are coalescing against Russia. At a certain point, the Chinese are going to start wondering, is it worth it to have Russia as an ally? Putin may, at a certain point, that is, is decide that his economy, stocks, bonds, currency, banks are falling part so badly that he made a major miscalculation. Or maybe he's irrational enough and he believes his days are numbered, so why not go down fighting and winning no matter what the cost? The latter, many people tell me, is in the cards. So what does the current situation mean for us? No matter what our financial companies say or do, we know the sanctions against Russia will blow back to the bank stocks, even if they shouldn't. We've seen this happen repeatedly in history, and it makes no sense to go against the grain for the moment. I think it's moronic, but you can't fight the tape. The notion that our banks are linked to their banks is totally ingrained. All weekend, I had to hear about a Lehman moment, meaning a moment where credit freezes up and a gigantic institution falls, causing a horrific domino effect. The usual suspects bore the brunt of it. J.P. Morgan, oh my, Goldman Sachs, Citigroup. I think it'll take weeks for the market to realize that these banks are simply not in the crosshairs of the sanctions. They won't be hurt by the fact that Russia's been turned into a financial pariah. Unfortunately, the last time Russia had a currency crisis in 1997, our banks really did get hurt. Boy, is it different now? Although that's because there was a much larger East Asian currency crisis back then, there was also a period in 2011 where the European banks were weakened, and that weighed on our bank stocks incorrectly, too. So the financials will drag down the market for the duration of the war, and sadly for the bulls, what's bad news for the banks is very bad news for the market. Again, it's at the oil stream alley, but strength in energy can't offset weakness in the financials. Oil's a bad leader because high oil prices are tax on everyone else. Of course, there's a major cross-current here, which is that this kind of geopolitical turmoil always causes a flight to quality. That means people buy treasuries. When a major power mentions it's getting its nukes warmed up, a flight to quality is pretty inevitable. This becomes confusing because just like the sellers falsely believe our banks are now in trouble because of the sanctions, there are buyers who look at this flight to quality and incorrectly conclude that it means the Fed doesn't have to act decisively to tamp down inflation. They assume that the war in Ukraine will hit the brakes on the global economy enough so that j can take it easy. I disagree entirely. I think the fight to quality is being confused with the need fed, that the fight between the West and Putin will somehow cause Fitchy Powell to be less hawkish. In reality, though, the war over Ukraine just makes the inflation situation worse. A shortage in oil is already leading to higher prices at the pump. Ukraine's also the fourth largest exporter of wheat and corn, so the grain complex will go higher, too. No relief. That means the Fed will be even under more pressure to raise interest rates. So when JPEG goes in front of Congress on Wednesday and Thursday, he's likely to extend sympathy to the people of Ukraine, as I do. But I don't see him relenting in his mission to kill inflation now. It doesn't help that stocks are still expensive on a historical basis, at least according to Warren Buffett, who opined on a lack of good value in his weekend letter. And it suddenly doesn't matter if more people return to the workforce, as Omicron wanes, because even without the labor shortage, the war means we need to worry about energy and food shortages. So why not just run for the market? Whoa. I'm in favor of raising some cash, which is always a good idea if you don't have any. Uh, We already did that for uh, the Travel Trust, which you can follow by joining our club. We're in a seasonally strong moment. Remember what Larry Williams told us this week as we went over, Right. And we had a huge bounce late last week to the point where you could argue that we were due for profit taking. In the end, I think that we have to choose not between Russia or Ukraine or a hardline Fed versus softline Fed. But whether stocks have gone down enough to be able to handle what either Powell or Putin throws at us, have they gone down enough? To me, it's a very tough call. We have a huge number of high-quality stocks that have given up meaningful gains and a large number of newly public stocks without any support that have gone down substantially. The latter can be seen to have periodic rallies, but I think they'll still end up lower. I like a good Rx tonight. The former, though, the high quality stocks like that of Workday, which reported a stellar quarter this very evening, seem poised to run on any good news, like that. any sign that inflation might be peaking. We will hear from Workday's co CEO, Neil Bushfee, tonight. I think his stock fell far, too, way too far, versus the numbers that just printed. Here's the crux If you thought inflation may be peaking and therefore you had a good chance to buy dividend stocks or healthcare stocks or tech stocks with high mobiles, then Putin's war means you no longer have anything to cheer about at all. It's a cruel, heartless event, a humanitarian tragedy. From the stock market's point of view, from its perspective, it's also real bad for inflation. Which brings me to the bottom line. We live in the United States, not Europe. Newsflash. So the takeaway for us is that Fed Chief Jay Powell may have to acknowledge that this war has created more inflationary pressures, meaning he'll have to stick with the harder line he adopted last November, the one that's been the death knell for high-flying stocks and a chief obstacle to this market's ability to mount a sustained across-the-board rally. No matter what Putin does, until inflation peaks, get used to this vicious seesaw trading. Let's start the questions with Terry in Florida. Terry. Hi,
2: Jim. I'm a founding member. And I want to tell you, your club is the best investment I've ever made.
3: Unsolicited. I did not know that. Thank you, Terry. Thank you very much.
2: My question is R.H. I fell in love with the CEO when you had him on TV. But I'm now in a world of pain. What do you think of R H, right? Now? I think you have oh, to I think bye. you have to
3: buy more. I think that first of all, thank you for saying those great things about the club, Ter. I will tell you that RH, Mr. Friedman he has done amazing things. And people continue to believe that what he does is not enough. The stock goes down and then he confounds the bears. OK. And I think Gary Friedman is going to do it again. The stock's been cut in half. That's wrong. I'm a buyer. Jonathan in Ohio. Jonathan.
4: We're in the midst of the gnarly times. I hope Jimmy Chill is keeping his cool.
3: Well, Jimmy Chill will so. always be trying until he looks at his mention <laughs> comments. Sometimes there's criticism mm-hmm. in there. What's up?
4: That's right. So PayPal suffered an immense downfall in the past few months. Uh, currently trading, obviously, at about a third of its 52-week high. Do you think the decrease in value is warranted or overblown at this point?
3: I think it's a great question. Uh, now, let's I talk about a lot of our winners, all of fang. But uh, the trust stumbled on PayPal. I stumbled on PayPal. The trust its like the trust of some living organism. I did it. And why? Because I uh, believed that Dan Schulman when he came on Mad Money, st- chased out a story. Uh, Which didn't happen. And uh, because it didn't happen, it's now become a referendum on Dan Schulman, not on PayPal. And right now, the referendum says no. And that's what I'm concerned about. How about Carlos in Pennsylvania, please? Carlos. Hey, what's up, Jim? Not much. What's going on with you? Uh, Not much. So I came here to ask about Dave and Buster's stock. Interesting. That's a really interesting stock. Why? Because people are going back. They're having fun again. The stock's up, but not enough. It's only 18 times earnings. It's really well run. I think it's a very, very interesting stock here and one that I think will work as the world opens. All right. Pal may have to admit that this war has created even more inflationary pressures, so I'll have to stick with the hard line. The one that's actually not that good for many high-flying stocks unless they make a lot of money. And it also hurts the prospects for pulling rally. i Monday Money Tonight. HP reported first quarter results after the Bell, and I'm running through the report with the company CEO. Then the market has had a rough start in 2022. So what does it say about the VIX? And what is the VIX telling us about where we can be headed? I'm going off the chart special Monday edition. And Workday reported for closing. I'm hearing for the cloud stocks top brass, fresh off the report. So far, I like what I am hearing. Stay with Raymer. Late last week, Dell surprisingly reported an outright earnings miss-blaming supply chain problems for its woes, and the whole PC edifice got slammed. But after close today, we got results from the other big computer company, HP Inc. Well, you know what? They told a very different story. HP delivered a clean top and bottom line beat, even issuing better-than-expected guidance for the current quarter and raising their full-year forecast substantially. Well, the numbers, okay, they weren't perfect. Cash flow was a touch light, and the printing business fell short. we got to find out about that. There were some major positives, including higher than anticipated margins, which I didn't expect. Now, not what you would think would happen if the PC industry is being dragged down by a supply chain crisis. So what the heck is going on here? Is HP simply better run? Let's check in with Enrique Lores, the president and CEO of HP, Inc., to get a better read on the quarter and his outlook for the future. Mr. Lourdes, welcome back to Man Money.
4: Hi, Jim. Great to be here with you.
3: Well, Enrique, it's great to see you. Everyone's been moaning about supply chain problems, worries about parts. Frankly, I didn't see that kind of worry in your quarter. It seems like somehow you've fixed or beaten the supply chain problem.
4: Well, we we have been executing the plan that we described a few quarters ago, and we have been making progress. We We are shifting our focus to those categories where we see the highest demand, also categories where we can make more money, and, and this is really what we have been doing, and the results this quarter reflect the progress we have made.
3: Now, a lot of people were concerned that work from home may be diminishing, so therefore your notebook sales would be hurt. Now, notebook was not as strong as I'd like, but everything else is very strong. How do you balance this idea of work from home and your business?
4: Actually, we see work from home and the overall hybrid way of working as a big opportunity for us. Companies are investing in having a Better experience for, empl- for their employees, whether they're in the office, whether they're, whether they're at home. Also, the equipment needs to be better because you want great cameras, you, w- you want great audio, you want more memory. And this is really shifting demand toward premium categories. And all of these are, are good things for us.
3: All right. So how do we, uh, how do we explain... Personal printing. I mean, it's obviously uh, that corporate printing is great. But you know what? I think you guys do so much good stuff. And I'm always surprised that this isn't just a breakout moment for personal, given the fact that so many of us are working from home.
4: Well, but in this case, the shipments of printings have been really impacted by the supply chain. And this is something that we shared with investors already in the past. Most of our factories, most of the factories of our suppliers are in Southeast Asia. And these countries have been in full lockdown during most of the fall and the beginning of December. And we were expecting that because with factories closed, we were not able to build products and therefore shipments have been impacted. I
3: know you have a high quality problem, Enrique. As long as I've known you, you've wanted to return money to shareholders. That is very important to you. But the stock has run up quite a bit. Does a buyback still make
4: sense all the way up here? Well, we continue to believe that the value of our shares is undervalued and therefore that buying HP shares is a good investment for investors. We have committed to buy at least $4 billion of shares this year. This quarter we bought $1.5 billion, and we are going to continue to execute our plan because, again, we think it's a good investment. All right. Now, in terms of good investments, you
3: know I've been fascinated by 3D. Your predecessor always knew I was wild about it. I'm now looking at a choose packaging, a, a bottle that would revolutionize things and make it so that perhaps we didn't uh, wreck the oceans. Now, are there buyers for this, this 3D printing, or is it just a cool thing and I ought to put it on my shelf?
4: I think with, with, and I have the bottle also here with me, I think with this technology, we really have a strong opportunity to replace most of the single-use plastic bottles and other containers that are used in the world. What we can do with a combination of 3D printing plus the technology we got from Choose Packaging, is to create, let's say, plastic paper, bottles made with paper that can replace plastic. And that's a great opportunity for us going forward that will also have a significant impact in the world from an, from an ESG perspective.
3: But have you contracted with any of the big plastic bottle makers?
4: We are starting the, the process. They were a small startup that had already initiated the process. And now with our scale with our relationship, we can really drive that in a much more aggressive way.
3: Now, I am very glad you made an acquisition uh, for gaming. I've always felt that this is the area that you most need to be in because you have such a good reputation for speed anyway. uh, Cloud core I'm looking at, uh, surround sound. Uh, How will this work? Who will want this?
4: Well, gamers all over the world spend more money in what we call peripherals, headsets, and other devices that they need, they spend more five times more time, money on that than indoor PCs. And the acquisition we did with HyperX puts us in a leading position in headsets. The headset that you have has a battery that will allow you to play non-stop for 12 days. I'm sure this is what you're looking for to do. Well, uh,
3: I actually am a big user of a lot of your other products. I don't know if i do that. I have the love, and I want people to know, I love touchscreen PC. You know that. Uh, What do people, once they touch touchscreen TV, do they ever, uh, uh, PC, do they ever go back?
4: No, I think this is one of the key differentiators of Windows PCs, and specifically of our portfolio. And as you say, once you start using it, you don't go back to the old technology, because usability is better access to applications is faster, and you really have a much better experience. And in the PC space, it's all about experiences now. Better experiences drive better sales and drive better, more happier, happier customers.
3: Well, I know I can't live without it. Once again, I want to congratulate you for delivering and exceeding as you've done quarter after quarter after quarter since I first met you. And that is Enrique Lores, the president and CEO of HP. And good to see you, sir. Thank you.
4: Thank you, Jim. Great to be here.
3: You heard what he said. He still thinks the stock is cheap, and they've got a lot of firepower power to buy a lot of stock. May have money's back yet Coming up, these days, fear is a rational
5: response to opening a newspaper. Flip beyond the fold and let Kramer turn that fear into focus. Off the Charts, next.
2: You seek the key.
3: I want to get a read on this treacherous market. This morning, we started off in bad shape, only to rally hard, then roll over again before a late surge gave us a split decision for the major averages. Oh, man, we are at an incredibly uncertain moment. No one knows how this war will play out. If they tell you they do, they are, they're wrong. Ukrainians holding up better than expected for a weekend. Russians ramping up brutality and the West enacting hard-hitting sanctions that have obliterated the ruble but haven't really seemed to influence Putin. Everything feels up in the air, and we haven't even gotten to this week's big bad event here in the U.S. when Fed Chief Jay Powell speaks to Congress. And then, of course, there's the unemployment number. This is a moment of tremendous fear for the stock market after that fabulous rally last week. So tonight, I want to take the emotions out of the equation and approach stocks from a more quantitative direction. And that's why we're going off the charts with the help of Mark Sebastian. Oh, he's a brilliant technician who's the founder of OptionPit.com. He also writes for RealMoney.com because he's our resident volatility expert. And volatility is, is what you're getting. And what you get when investors are afraid. Sebastian likes to monitor the CBOE Volatility Index, or the S, the VIX for short, because it can tell you a lot about the animal spirits of the market. There's a reason it's also known as the fear gauge. So take a look at this pair of charts showing the S&P 500 and the VIX going back to the beginning of the new year. Well, you can see what's happened, right? Since the beginning of 2022, the market's been slowly moving in one direction, and that is down. And the VIX, well, hold it. You know, I mean, you do get some temporary rallies here. Throughout this period, Sebastian points out that the VIX index has moved up, which is exactly what you'd expect, right? Remember, the VIX and the SP 500 are supposed to head in opposite directions. Again, it's called the fear gauge. However, until today, the VIX all, always seemed to have a ceiling. It would briefly close above 30 and then pull back. Now, though, it's above 30 again. So the fear, it is real. All right. We feel it. Perilous times, remember? Perilous. The thing is, we've got a lot of cross-currents here. While Ukraine isn't particularly plugged into the global economy, Russia's another story. I mean, they are a major exporter of energy. That's the principal asset. Uh, It's why all this turmoil has caused the price of crude to skyrocket to the mid-'90s. So check out this next pair of charts. The one on the bottom is the regular volatility index. The one on top is the volatility index for the USO, the U.S. oil ETF. Basically, it's the VIX, but for oil, not stocks. The OVIX. Yep, there's the OVEX. While the price of crude has been on the rise, the volatility of oil has also spiked with the OVIX surging to the 50s. Look at this run, huh? Sebastian thinks that's a major reason why the regular VIX has been flying, too. Let's pull all of this into one set of charts, the S&P 500, the oil VIX and the regular VIX. Sebastian notes that in the S&P's decline from the high on February 9th at 4587, we really only fell to 4225 at the lows last week. But nearly 8% drop will be one that happened over the course of a couple of weeks. Meanwhile, look at the VIX and the oil VIX. Okay, here's the VIX and the oil VIX. During the same period, the volatility index moved from just under 20 to over 30, which Sebastian says is what you expect to see if traders are anticipating a 2% decline in the S&P every day. At the same time, the oil VIX surged even higher, pricing in 3% moves per day. Put it all together, and Sebastian thinks volatility is potentially swelling here. That's a technical term. This is something he predicted the last time we highlighted his work in January. A volatility swell is where the VIX surges over two to six weeks, and then the stock market tends to get obliterated. Next, take a gander at this chart of the volatility index futures. Remember, you can bet on March volatility or April volatility or June volatility, not just present volatility. These futures can help predict where the stock market might be headed. When we last spoke to Sebastian in January, he pointed out that the VIX futures were going into a state of what's known as backwardation, where the current volatility index is above the next month's futures. He warned us that this is often a sign that the market's getting irrational. It means we're getting close to a bottom. Well, possibly. Or it can mean we're about to have another breakdown. I know that doesn't really help us. But listen, five weeks ago, we predicted a breakdown, and that's exactly what we got. Now, the VIX futures are once again in backwardation. That's what they've done for the last seven trading days. For Sebastian, this is more proof that the market's stressed. It means bad things can happen. So where does he think we're headed? Let's hop in the Wayback Machine, look at how things played out during the Gulf War in 1990 and 1991. I like to use the Gulf War as a touchstone for this moment, because like now, we had a conventional war between two unequal forces, although this time it's the good guys who are outgunned. Take a look at how the S&P 500 and the VIX behaved back then, all right? It's really instructive. The Gulf War started on August 2nd of 1990 when Iraq invaded Kuwait and took over in the blink of an eye. Immediately, the U.S. sent troops to protect our allies in Saudi Arabia. There was constant speculation about when we'd move to retake Kuwait. Throughout that early period, the VIX surged higher and higher. And while the S&P 500 plummeted 20 percent. However, Sebastian points out that the VIX eventually topped out a few weeks into the conflict on August 23rd. Okay. The S&P continued to drop for a couple more weeks, then churned through that October. But the market actually bottomed on April 11th, four and a half months before the war ended. And a couple months before the U.S. started its counteroffensive into Kuwait Desert Storm. We saw one final spike in the VIX in late December. All right. So remember, keep this in mind Uh, on the even the counteroffensive. From here, though. The S&P was off to the races and the VIX sank like a stone. Sebastian thinks it's important because while things keep escalating between the West and Russia, he expects to see lots of volatility and lots of weakness in the stock market. Weakness. Just like in the run-up to the Gulf War. It wasn't the beginning of the war that caused the bottom back then. It was the beginning of the American counterattack, something we almost certainly won't get in Ukraine. Still, the market bottomed once we knew how the conflict would end. OK, and that's what Sebastian is expecting this time around. Back in 1990, anyone who bought stocks at any point after the August sell was up significantly by the time the war ended. And short, he thinks there will be more pain. But if you've got some cash on the sidelines, he says there will come a point. When you want to start putting it to work, we've been doing something like that for our charitable trust. Remember, big meeting Friday, did some buying late in the day today. In the meantime, he predicts more wild days like last week when we exploded higher or today when the market came right back down and then went up again. What would make him more confident? Sebastian wants to see the market make a new low with the VIX not making a new high. When the VIX and the S&P diverge, it tells you that the trend is about to change. That will be the moment, he says, to jump in with both feet. That was like October of 1990. But the bottom line, the charts as interpreted by Mark Sebastian say we aren't there yet. Something I agree with. He predicts more pain. you got to steer yourself to get through this period so you can be opportunistic when the moment comes to start buying. And that moment will come. Let's go to Allen in Rhode Island. Alan Allen. Kramer. Alan, for taking my call. Of course, appreciate it. Um, so, I've been invested about ten years or so, but just recently started to dig into things like ten Qs and eight Ks um, on the SEC website. Uh, I started taking some accounting classes too, and oh, now great. I, I un- and, and and you know I I understand the numbers a lot better now when I take a look at That's income great. statements, the financials and stuff like that. But I. I I've been confounded by a stock that appears to have all the right numbers. They seem to have like Apple-like profit margins. They did $16 in revenue last year. But for some reason, they only trade at five times earnings. What is wrong with rocket companies? Oh, man, that's fantastic that you asked that. And what's wrong with it? And everybody keeps going down, to sell, whatever. It's because when rates go up. Then mortgages, uh, the actual application mortgages, they, they, they decline. Um, is Rocket overdone down here? I got to tell you, it, it, this thing that went down every day, I think it can bounce to 13, 14. But it is not where I want you to be. I mean, if you really think that chart, that thing's going to bounce, go buy Toll Brothers. That's a much better investment. How about we go to Sunny in Illinois? Sunny? Hey, Jim, it's Sonny from Chicago, a big Chicago-Windy City booyah to you. Excellent booyah. A lot of good uh, sport fans there. What's happening?
1: Hey, Jim, before I talk about my company, I want to take this time to thank you for educating and entertaining us and leveling the playing field for us small investors.
3: Well, thank you. I hope you're a member of our club. That's what we do every day. I want everyone to be a member of the club. It would mean a great deal to me if you sign up. We've got a big meeting Friday. How can I help?
1: Member and I'm giving a shout out to all your million viewers. Sign up for the investment club. I love your daily emails and alerts. It's beautiful, man.
3: Yeah, I mean, at one point today, my daughter said, "Hey, what do you sleep at the wheel?" I haven't seen one of those in the last couple hours. I said, no, 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 man, we're working on Walmart. I mean, give me a break. I need a break from my daughter. That's all right. She, you know, she's interested. Whatever. It's, an important, teaching hey, you know, it's an
4: important teaching tool. It's important teaching tool. One more comment before I talk about my company. This stock
1: market is bipolar. One day we're up 700 points. One day we're down 300. It's making my head spin, man. Well,
3: I'm familiar with that. So let's go.
1: <laughs> All right. So, hey, my question, Jim, is about SoFi. I know they recently got a, um, a bank charter. I'm wondering what you think about their future prospects. And growth oh, potential my. I have, have Sorry, I have to tell
3: you. Sonny, I have to tell you. Uh, look, I'm a Noto fan. He helped me bring street.com public back in 96 to 98. He worked with me closely. This thing is too beaten down. I just don't think it should be at 11. I think 14-15 is a little more like it. And I would tell anyone who wanted to buy SoFi, just go buy some and put it away. I'm banking with Noto. He's proven to be someone who we want to bank with for a long time now. Okay, tonight's Chartist is predicting a little more pain before we get some gain. Something I had not agreed with. So, steal yourself and get ready to be opportunistic when the moment comes to start buying. We've already done our selling for the trust. Now, I'm looking for opportunities much more to have money at, including my post-earnings exclusive with Workday. Hey, what could the future of work look like as he as the office people people return to the office? You know what? I think this company delivered a great quarter. I'm talking to the CEO. Then I'm sick of the negativity when it comes to the market. I'll reveal my strategy for taking advantage of the opportunity that is presented by the defeatist. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. All right, listen, ever since the Fed started taking a hard line against inflation in November, the entire cloud software cohort has been put through the meat grinder because Wall Street now has no love for growth stocks in times of high inflation, rising interest rates. They just don't. That's historic. Since then, some of our favorite cloud names have just been obliterated, even as the underlying companies are doing well. No one seems to care about the fundamentals in this environment. But at a certain point, the stocks come down, as I said at the top of the show, to levels that you can't resist. Take Workday, the maker of software tools for financial planning and human capital management. After the close, they reported a really amazing quarter. Clean top and bottom line beat, accelerating revenue growth. In response, Workday's stock is flying after hours trading, as it should because this was a monster good quarter. So will it won't be enough to turn around the co- the whole cohort? I don't know. But it seems like it could. Let's take a closer look with Anil Bushman. He's the co-founder and chairman and co-CEO of Workday. To learn more about the quarter and where the company headed, Mr. Bushman, welcome back to Man Money. Tim, how are you? Well, Neil, you know, I'll tell you, I'm good. You know why? Because these numbers are extraordinary. It's probably the best thing that I saw happen today after all the terrible things that are happening uh, in Europe. Uh, and I just want to know how you did it. You are accelerating your business at a time when many other businesses are decelerated. Uh,
1: you know, I, I I'd, uh, first want to just thank our, our great team for, um, for a terrific performance in, in uh, the fourth quarter and the full year. Uh, I, I think it's just a sign that the, the world continues to transition to the cloud. We've got great products. We take care of our customers. We take care of our employees. And you know, all together, things are working right now.
3: But it also seems that you've developed the suite of products that, frankly, are really good during periods of uncertainty. Uh, you can't really budget what you want to do in this environment unless you have uh, th- these remarkable products. I mean, not just, and listen, it's not just adaptive. I could argue that pecan that, that I would argue that extend all these things help you make your budget.
1: I They, they, all, they all did. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, COVID has been a challenging time for, for all of us. And right now, I just want to just take a second and say that uh, my, my my thoughts and prayers are with everybody affected by the situation in Ukraine and we're, we're trying to support our employees and, and, uh, and contractors who are involved. At the end of the day, we're all about taking care of people and taking care of employees. And as everybody went remote, our applications just ended up fitting that, that new environment really well. And in particular with PECAN. Every CEO who couldn't see their employees, they wanted to know what they were thinking about. Are they engaged? Are they really connected to the company? Do they, do they want to continue to stay at that company? And that's just uh, turned out to be a terrific acquisition for us and, and really consistent with what we do as a company.
3: Well, I'm glad you mentioned Peacom because you know, we had Qualtrics on recently. And increasingly things that we would not think are the way that you and I were uh, thought important when we were starting out, which is how we feel, what's our morale, what do we want to do, have come to the fore because there's a better offer out there if you don't like what you're doing. It would seem that this 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 product and others allow you to pivot and, and get a sense about whether things aren't going right and done in a very empirical way, not a touchy-feely way.
1: Exactly. Uh, in, in a very data-centric way, you really do want to understand where your employees are mentally uh, in a very challenging environment uh, we 're we're all disconnected from uh, human interaction the last couple of years we're now we're now all getting back in the office and getting back together. But for the last couple of years, we wanted to know not not how people are feeling anecdotally but when we look at the numbers, how, how does actually uh, the average employee feel about being connected to their company in a in a statistical way The, the anecdotal stuff always matters. But the, the broader scheme, when you're a company like Workday, where we're closing in on 15,000 employees. You need to look at the whole data set. And all of our large customers need to look at the whole data set, too, and really understand where they are with their employees.
3: Well, if I step back, I always like to look. I see sometimes you've got uh, great work with universities, sometimes with healthcare. I care, lo- and sometimes with banks. I am looking at Right Aid, Dick's Sporting Good. I'm looking at at-home stores. And I'm thinking you are making tremendous inroads with retail.
1: We have been. We've, we've been very fortunate. Retail has been a very strong segment with us, uh, you know, starting with uh, Walmart and, and Whole Foods and others. Uh, I'm a big sports fan, so landing Dick's Sporting Goods was a, a really big win for us. Uh, I've known Ed for a long time, and uh, we're just thrilled to have them as a customer, and we're going to do a great job for them. But that that segment, which is very employee-centric, uh, increasingly employee-centric, has become a great segment for Workday.
3: Now, if you could explain to people, uh, if you took all of the different products together in one, okay, you would eliminate, I think, maybe four or five different vendors. Uh,
1: you can say that. I'm, I'm, you know, we have to be careful in saying that. But, but you're right. We can we can uh, take away uh, all the needs for HR, for payroll, for finance, for procurement. Uh, uh, you know, really, in in the case of student systems. Also for higher education, we can be their full solution, and then we have a uh, an analytics solution that lets you analyze all that data. So, um, the, our our goal is try to be a unified solution across planning, execution, analysis, and then with uh, with with workday, um, uh, the underlying platform, extend, change it to to modify your business process to meet to meet your needs. But 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 you're absolutely right. We're we're trying to be a a full platform solution for the, the administrative workloads. Well, I
3: mean, one last question then, could that be in some, why you have uh, been able to really forecast subscription revenue in a very I mean, I'm not saying it's aggressive. I'm saying that you're looking at your book of business and your book of business is very solid going forward.
1: Well, again, I'm going I'm to thank the team, Doug Robinson, Chana Fernandez and the sales teams. Our growth rate accelerated From the 19% number to, uh, you know, this year going to this year, 22%. And we're projecting that similar growth rate going forward. Uh, We had hoped that would be the case. It's the strongest year we had in the last five years in terms of uh, net new bookings growth. So, you know, it seems like things are working, fingers crossed. Uh, I think I think a lot to do with it is is us becoming a broader platform provider for for our customers.
3: Yeah, it does seem almost, I mean, it seems that all the acquisitions are working, you're firing on all cylinders. And I mean, when I say you, I mean you and your team. I am not just saying you and Neil Bushry, but congratulations No, anyway on a remarkable quarter and one that I think could make a lot of people very excited about the cloud again. We kind of forgot about the cloud. Thank you. Thank you for being on the show. <laughs> Well, thank you, thank you, Jim. But I'll say again, it's all about the team. It's oh, always my. about
1: the team. So. And Dix, so I agree. You,
3: I agree. I see that basketball. And it looks like it's signed by Joel Embiid and and Harden. No, that's just one. It's a Neil Bush, work workday chairman, co-founder, and co-CEO, and pure joy, by the way, and delivers some unbelievable numbers tonight. He and his team, man, buddy's back to the break. Just chill out. Just Chill Master J? The Chill Man is in the house. He's happy. The lightning round is coming
5: up when Mad Money returns. It is time. It's
3: time the lightning round. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Dad, that to The light round comes over. Steven in Colorado. Steven! Hi Jim. Hi, this is Stephen um, I was wondering about Oceanary international. It's, it's right, it's right. It's right here. It does a lot of it and it does you know there are a lot of times when I look at these stocks and I think, well, they have contracts and the contracts can go bad. I think these guys are very good. Let's go to Keith in Illinois. Keith. Hey, Jimmy Chill. Good Yo, chill man. you do. Um my grandpa got me into investing and I know you read all your books. So I want to thank you for that. Well, Thank you. Thank you. This is fabulous. Fabulous. How can I help? Yeah,
1: so I'm a 25-year-old investor. I've recently opened a position into this energy company. So I get your thoughts on uh, kind of what to look out for ticker symbol
3: P-E-L-L. Tellurian. Okay. Sharif Suki, I think for a 25 year old, that is a... <laughs> and I'm going to throw in another. I'm going to do clean energy, C L N E. Why not? Why not? After we saw that fantastic bid by Chevron today. Now, here's what matters with Tellurian. Their balance sheet. It's not great. They have to raise a lot more debt, but when they are finished, there will be ready customers for their liquefied natural gas. Let's go to Jeff in Ohio. Jeff.
1: Hey, good afternoon, Mr. Kramer. Thanks hey, for you. taking my call. All right. Quite well. Uh, I took a couple positions in Equitrans before the end of last year with the recent news on their Mountain Valley pipeline and their latest earnings report. I'm off about 30% from my cost okay. basis. Okay. What's your thoughts?
3: Well, okay. Some of these are better than others. And this one, I uh, was down for multiple days. It yields 9%. i am worried about a 9% yielder. It makes me feel like it's not sustainable. Why don't you try Enbridge? That one we're not worried about because it's Monaco. Horace in Illinois. Horace! How you doing, Jim? I am good. How are you, Horace? No, very good. Jim, I have um, just one question. Um, the I want, I'd like to know your opinion about AT&T. Not the short term, but uh, the long term. Maybe for the long term, there's something there. Uh, short term, no. Uh, short term, it's a family show. So there's no, I can't really go into it. Uh, it's, it's just not right. I I worry about my reputation. I worry about what people think of me. I'm mostly worried about my, my late grandma, Nana Mary, who said, if you've done anything nice to say, don't say it. So, therefore, that's my line on ATT. Let's go to Steve in Massachusetts.
4: Steve. Hi, Mr. Kramer. Hello. This is Steve from Massachusetts. Been watching Mad Money since day one. Day one? Hey, you're day doing one, You must be 48. What's up? You? What's going on? Well, the stock I'm calling about is a financial advisory and asset management company. It has a low P.E. of 7.4, a really nice dividend yield of five and a half percent. It did recently have an insider trading issue. The stock has been plummeting.
3: The name of the company is Lazard. I like Lazard. Jimmy Chil likes Lazard. I think this is an opportunity, not a negative. I like it. I think it can do well. Uh, And that's a really good one that you brought to me. Let's go to Anthony, Illinois. Anthony. Yes, Jim. How are you? I am good, Anthony. How about you? I'm all
4: right. You know, for the past 20 years, I've been listening to you on TV. And by paying close attention to what you're saying, your details, I've made a lot of money. Uh, my question today is concerning proximity.
3: Doximity, I think, is very inexpensive. I think the doctors love it. It's a great way to get the word out. I want to thank you for the kind words. You know, is a high-growth stock. People don't like them, but one day they will. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round
5: is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, before you buy, 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 or sell, 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 take a breath and think, think, think. Kramer explains why every crisis strategy should start with a deep breath next.
3: There's one constant in this business. It's so much easier to be negative than positive. I like to wake up early, as you know, and many times I'm mesmerized by what we call the crawl, the parade of stocks that go by underneath the CNBC personalities. This morning, I watched one plummeting stock after another. Caterpillar down four, NVIDIA and AMD down two, Facebook down three, just a hideous progression, like it was screaming, here comes the slaughter. But by 1030, all of those stocks I mentioned were up. If you took the other side of the trade when people were dumping them, you could have had a quick win one by the way that was actually accentuated for many of these stocks at the end of the day if you truly wanted to sell them you got a much better opportunity if you steeled yourself in the early morning and waited a few hours for a better moment or if you just dumped them at the close so how come you rarely hear about how panic sellers create tremendous opportunities simple it's easier to be negative part of that's the inherent bias in the media towards talking about chaos I think our network is far from the worst offender here. I mean, we tend to be much more constructive. But even then, commentators who come on do have a bias toward negativity. Lest something bad happens, it makes them look foolish. No one ever got hurt by saying they're cautious and times are perilous. At the end of the day, if you're making public statements, it's much safer to be a pessimist. Let's say you came on air this morning and were asked to opine about those beaten down stocks I just mentioned. Even if you like them, in the face of that hideous future selling and the enormous uncertainty in Eastern Europe, it's simply not worth it to stick your neck out. Too risky. What happens if you recommend Caterpillar Vladimir Putin ratchets things up uh, in an insane way at 1030? You'll get torn to pieces on social media, and that YouTube clip may be following you for the rest of your career. It's so much easier just to avoid any potential controversy and tell people you're afraid. Of course, that's not my style, mainly because I have no choice. I run a charitable trust, and all of our moves are public. So I'm acutely aware of what deserves to be down and what can rally. Take the semiconductor stocks. They were all hit hard before the open, yet they have little to do. No, they have nothing to do with Russia. Oddly, even the oil stocks got dragged down by the gravitational pull of the S&P futures at first. But that didn't last long because they benefited from the cast and they flew up. Let's draw some conclusions. First, when you see stocks down badly and they have nothing to do with the event that's causing the decline, in this case, Russia, it makes no sense to panic at all. If you sell, you're just trading off the futures and gloom, not events, and you'll end up losing money. Second, it's important to know what the companies you own actually do. I bet the sellers of these stocks had no idea what they are. Otherwise, they would have stayed the course. Third and most important, you need to be opportunistic. Remember what matters and what doesn't. I can understand why you might want to sell Citigroup or J.P. Morgan or Goldman Sachs, because we don't really know their full exposure to Europe. Although I actually bet it's very minimal. But do you sell, say, uh, First Horizon, the fabulous Tennessee-based bank that's been expanding, not into Europe, but throughout the southern portion of the United States? No. You sell something like that at your own peril. As First Horizon just got a monster $25 per share takeover bid from Toronto Dominion. A nice premium from its 1825 close on Friday. See O'Brien Jordan, one of our absolute favorite guests, quarter after quarter after quarter. I bet you got sick of seeing his stock getting no respect despite all the fabulous work he's done for shareholders. So maybe you just said, you know what? Take the bid. And you don't walk away from tech that's been hammered if it has earnings momentum like Workday. Talk about seller's remorse tonight. Ouch. I'm not being a Pollyanna here. I'm simply trying to acknowledge the truth. Even when they're feeling confident, commentators don't want to risk sounding too bullish because the bulls always get roasted if they make a mistake. Nobody ever goes after the bears like that. There is no penalty in this business for sounding too cautious and talking about perilous times. The only defense is to know what you own and recognize that you must not be shaken by events that have nothing to do with your stocks. You don't have to be visible like I am for my travel trust, and don't forget our 1230 meeting on Friday. But you must steal yourself at night and in the morning before the open, because the aggressive futures traders often turn out to be dead wrong. So wrong that you almost have to take the other side of the trade. I like to say there's always a bull market summer, I'd probably try to find it just for you right here on Bad Money. I'm Jim Kramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now.
2: This podcast is supported by FedEx.